bit overwhelmed already this morning, as I'm sure you are too. Uh, with gratitude, among a whole host of other things, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your words and your songs. And Rachel, thank you for your prayer. Uh, we are fully inside the space that God has provided for us, that we might encounter God and one another. And I'm not sure what your weeks look like, but to encounter this space and to feel it as sacred uh, is just everything. And your own participation in everything that has happened up to this point has created the possibility of encounter. I get to preach, and so uh, we're going to talk some more about James this morning. Let me read for you a passage. This is going to be out of uh, chapter 1, verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Listen, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourself of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act. They will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Now religion that is pure and that is undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their time of distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is week two of the book of James, of, uh, of four sermons we're going to share together in teachings. And then the fifth Sunday, I'm very excited about, is we're going to enact the book of James. If you've read through the entire book at the very end, it's this whole set of instructions for what the church should do. It includes healing and prayer for one another and confession of sins. And it doesn't say to think about these things. It says to do these things. And so this fifth Sunday of our study of James, we are going to, in our service, enact. We're going to do. Okay? So we're preparing to get to that point. But first, let's talk about the book of James. It gets terrible reviews, guys. I don't know if you've read online. But the book of James is not everybody's favorite book in the Bible. I'm going to read you just a few reviews of the book of James. And these are not by people on like Amazon. These are the, the church historians, church fathers and mothers. Uh, the least Christian book in the New Testament. <laughs> Lacks any distinctive Christian message. Now see what you hear in this one. Uh, the style and manner of James are more that of a Jewish prophet than a Christian apostle. Which I think was meant to be a sick burn, but just comes off as anti-Semitic. <laughs> James does not refer to Jesus Christ where one would expect. And then this last one, James has more to say about Rahab the prostitute than about Jesus. Uh, so what are we doing in the book of James? Well, it's in our Bible, so that's good enough for me. Uh, but 
James gets this bad rap a lot of the times because of the passage we read today. And then in chapter two, it just kind of goes on and on explaining and talking about what it means to be doers and not simply hearers. Faith without works is dead. You remember this part in the book of James. But here's where the tension comes in. And if you've spent any time in church, Vaughn, if you spent a lot of time in church, you probably heard this split here, that there's grace on one side and that there's works on the other side. And what Paul came to show us in all of those letters in the New Testament, as Paul is explaining Jesus, is that Christianity is a religion of grace. You were saved by faith, not by works, lest any of us are going to start to brag about what we did to earn our way into God's good graces, right? That's the grace side of this thing. Now, what Paul does not say is what ends up being carried forward through church history, which is that God is uninterested in our behavior, in our ethics, in our virtue, or in our works. However, for various reasons, a lot of which are pretty gross and nasty and have a lot to do with our common lineage with our brothers and sisters in Judaism and our inability to hold the tension of the differences of our beliefs, the early church and the Jewish synagogue split directions and in that split lost a lot. And so it began to be understood that, well, well Judaism must therefore be a works-based religion and Christianity comes and shows the true way of a grace-based religion. And then you start to feel that tension all the time. Okay, We're not going to spend a ton of time on the history of anti-Semitism. However, we should all take a moment and recognize that we stand in the lineage of a lot of wrong that has been done. A lot of pain and heartache because of a bad reading of the Hebrew scriptures and a bad reading of the Jewish tradition. If you want to talk more about that, come talk to me. If you want to learn more about that on Thursdays, we talk about the book of James in our noon Bible study. She's got grace on one side and works on the other. And here's what happens. Grace gets elevated into this beautiful realm of the spirit. Grace is the stuff of heaven. And then works gets demoted into this earthly material realm. And, and, and works becomes the work of, of this kind of earthly fleshly existence. And, of course, we know that high things are good and low things are bad. Because we are quite spatially oriented. Then grace gets translated into the realm of ideas. And works to the realm of actions. Now, what happens when this subtle shift takes place is we assume that coming to church, that following Jesus and being a Christian is about knowing the right things, about making sure that we subscribe to the right ideas. And if our ethics happen to match those right ideas, then okay, cool, but let's make sure we get the ideas right first. This is why you can go to church and have a really, really scumbag of a minister. Uh, that story was not about me. I was not her minister. <laughs> I feel like I should say that. Uh, um, but it's totally intelligible, right? It's, it's all too common that you can go to school and you can learn all the right stuff and I can tell you the creeds and orthodoxy and doctrine and I can defend myself and I can preach from this book and I don't have to live any of it. You should, but you, you hear this, you feel this. You might have felt this tension. What we would like to do 
is rebalance this. And what James is trying to do is force us to rebalance what's happening here. Now, one other place that I've seen this happen now, today, in the last like several years, is once you have the right idea about a thing. Like, for instance, uh, we are rediscovering that racism is not the way of Jesus. We thought we discovered this in like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but we forgot some stuff. And so we're back to rediscovering the problems of race in America and the way that that's intertwined with religion. And a lot of people's way of expressing that deeply held belief and conviction is to make sure that we post about it online. And that, that takes care of the thing. Because it makes sure that you and I know that we have the right ideas. That we're holding the right convictions. And as long as our actions stay in that realm, they have no embodiment and they have no oomph, no power. But at least you know that I know the right answers to the questions. Can you feel that? And it's totally intelligible. It makes sense based on the way that we split our mind and our heart, our bodies and our beliefs. We've set one in the bad column and one in the good column, or at least one in the we can ignore this and, and the other, and this is all that matters. This is not how the scriptures go. Lord, Lord, we know all the right answers, right? And then Jesus would answer, so do the demons. James says this. We know this is true when Jesus is tempted in the wild places, in the gospels. The devil, the demons, they know this book. They know our stories. They know the scriptures. They believe these things. It just doesn't matter. It has to matter to us in our lives, the way that they're ordered. So let's do this, though. This is the message we heard from Jesus. Do you know what the next line is? It's out of a late letter in the New Testament. This is like a pop quiz. This is fun, right? You didn't know you were going to get a pop quiz on Sunday. So let's go through. I'm going to give you some options. This is the message we heard from Jesus. God helps those who help themselves. A few of you laugh, and then a few of you wonder where that is in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. I'm going to go ahead and disillusion you. However, if you ask the average person on the street, there's a, there is a, an assumption that yes, this is definitely scripture. But we won't get it all the way into why, but. Alright, next. Only good boys and girls go to heaven. This is the message we heard from Jesus. But that, like a lot of times that's what it feels like. Whenever you maybe encounter religion, that this is the story that's being told over and over again. The third answer is the one I would most go to. Wait, no one told me there would be a pop quiz. On Jesus. And then the last one that is, in fact, the bit of scripture. God is light and in him there is not darkness at all. God is light and darkness in him there is none. Not any. Following Jesus is not a multiple choice exam. And yet so much of my own life living and growing up in church was gathering all of the right answers up so that if anyone asked me, I would be able to give them those answers. And a lot of times when we talk about, like we're having a class after service today, our basics class, which is where we invite folks who are considering whether this might become their church home, talking about membership. We want to give them a good sense of what kind of church we are and where we're heading together and where we feel like God is taking us. And 
this is not exactly the place where I'm trying to make sure you have all the right answers to the questions. Um, but often that's what it feels like. There's a tension inside of this. So the beginning of faith is this belief in Jesus. Belief that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. That Jesus has done what we've heard said about him in the Gospels, in our tradition. Believing that Jesus came to show us what God looks like and what God's love feels like. And believing that death does not hold Jesus and therefore does not have a hold on us. This is all the belief in this master story of Jesus who we call the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one or the Savior. And that is a great place to start. And if this is not the place where you are, you're just kind of curious about who this Jesus is and why in the world this entire group of people would would follow and lean into this Jesus story, well, I, I would love to talk to you about that. And any other minister, any other leader here would love to have that conversation with you. But this is not where the conversation stops. In a life of following Jesus, it starts with believing in Jesus, but it has to move to believing with Jesus. To believing in the things that Jesus believes. And in that belief to live like Jesus shows us to live. It doesn't stop there. So what does it look like to live with Jesus, to believe with Jesus? If you were with us for the last year, we preached through the Sermon on the Mount, and that's a really good place to start. It would be called like the kingdom ethics. Jesus is showing us how to live in concert with the spirit and energy and rhythm and pattern of God. That might be the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 through 7. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1. Let's see how James talks about this. I believe that James is believing with Jesus. There is not a ton of Jesus talk in this book. If you go and you read it through, it's only a few chapters. You'll see very little mention of Jesus. It happens in chapter 2, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus the Christ? got Jesus and you've got lordship and then you've got messiahship kind of sandwiched around. So there is a story taking place in that verse, but it's not explicated. There's no mention of resurrection or crucifixion or even deep allusions to those things. But there's something about the book of James that makes me believe with Jesus. You must understand this, my beloved. Verse 19 I just want to show you a few things because we only have a little bit of time this morning. In that split that we talked about earlier between grace and between works is also an unfortunate split between the New Testament and the Old Testament. So where often you can, you can sort of hold just this, like the Gideon Bible, the one that's in the hotel rooms. You know that one? And it's really small because it just has the New Testament and the Psalms. Uh, I mean, that's a... It's a good book. I'm not gonna, I'm not, but, but not if you're just not a great book if you're Jewish. Uh, <laughs> Perlman. <laughs> no. It also would probably not be Jesus' first Bible to pick up. He didn't have the New Testament, did he? He had the Psalms, probably knew the Psalms front to back. 
And so in that split between grace and works or between Judaism and Christianity is often a loss of the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures as Christian scripture. And in that loss, we kind of are obscured or sometimes even blinded by what is happening in our New Testament. What is being said, what's being alluded to. So I'm going to tease it out for you just a little bit. Because I went to seminary, so I would know all the right answers to these kinds of questions. <laughs> James 1, 19 is a new Shema. Does everybody remember what the Shema is? Raise your hand if you remember what the Shema is. Come on, a few more. Oh, don't make me sad. Okay, we talk about it a lot. <laughs> Here's verse 19. You must understand this, my brothers and sisters, my beloved The Shema is the central confession in the Torah. Does everybody remember what the Torah is? Raise your hand if you know what the Torah is. That's great! It is uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. It is the central set of texts for the Jewish people. Everything else that happens in the Hebrew Scriptures is commentary on Torah. Torah sits in the middle. And when Paul talks about the law or the namas, he's often talking about Torah. Because that is the law. Torah is the teachings or the instructions or the law. And in the sort of the central confession in Torah happens in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema, if you go there, I'll read it for you. Uh, We've said it before. Shema Yisrael. Listen. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's the, the central confession. And it goes on from there. I'll read a little bit more for you. Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, you know this verse, with all your heart, your soul, and your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home or when you're away. When you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And then there's this cautioning against disobedience. Right before the Shema is a restating of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy is the law given again. The law is given the first time in the book of Exodus. And then it is deepened in the book of Leviticus. So what James is doing is a similar project to what Jesus is doing. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, y'all weren't with us when we did the Sermon on the Mount, but you might remember this. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, to get rid of the law, but came to what? To fulfill it. To fill it to overflowing. And then calls us to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect or whole or complete. So Jesus is not coming to do away with the Hebrew scriptures or the central confessions in Torah, but to bring to some kind of conclusion. And so James says to us, Shema Yisrael, but he says it in the Greek. It's just a little bit different. Listen, beloved. I'm calling us into a new posture of openness. And if you keep reading in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you start to see little drop-ins of the Shema and of Deuteronomy and of the law. You, you know, it says don't kill people and don't commit adultery. It says a little bit later, you've heard that God is one. Good for you. All of this is the restatement 
of the law and the commandments in Judaism. So what is Torah? Because this is also what Paul is so concerned with, is the relationship of the law to salvation, to our being saved, to our being brought out of the pit. All of this testimony that we heard and we received from you. This is Paul's wrestling with his tradition. I'm a Jew among Jews. I know the law front to back. That's Paul's confession. And yet I've encountered the risen Christ. And somehow that is reorienting his tradition around this new explosive reality. Torah. Torah is given to the people in the book of Exodus after they are freed from slavery in Egypt. And over time, Torah, or this set of instructions and commandments, it takes on this weight and then it starts to take on this burden But in its original form and intention, it was given to a free people with the belief that they could keep it. And the deep understanding of Torah that Paul carries forward, that Jesus definitely would have carried inside of him, is that Torah is the gift that God gives those who were once slaves and are now free to worship God. Torah is the trust that God has in humanity that we can partner with God. Now, if at some point these instructions become a burden, then they have lost their power. But what they are is they are a call to a people who had no voice ever speaking to them about anything that would give them dignity and says, you can participate in the rebuilding of the world. So James says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. Picking up on the same language that Moses gives to the people. This is yours to do. This is what God has shown me. This is what God has told me. This is your work to do in the world. And your acceptance of it is also an acceptance that you are free and no longer bound by Egypt. And each time they break it, each time they violate it and they transgress, it is because they don't believe that they are free. When they go out to pick manna, when they're not supposed to pick manna, and when they mistreat one another and they enslave one another and all of this stuff happens over time, it is because there is still a part of them that is captive, that is not free. And what God wants is our liberation so that we can worship in truth, and in freedom without coercion. This is good news. So when Jesus encounters the religious leaders in his time and scolds them for the way that they've handled Torah, it's because they've used it to rebind the people and not to free the people. This is still the working understanding of Torah or the law if you meet up with somebody who's working in Judaism as a faith tradition. These are not new chains, but these are works of freedom and liberation. What does this look like in our own life? I'll give you an example in mine and what it means to be part of a community, part of a covenant family. To-do lists on the fridge for the morning. Right? At a certain age, Judah and Ruthie, our children, uh, could participate in our life together. It's a move that all children have to make from being simply recipients of their parents' provision to being co 
laborers in a family economy. This is what it really means to deepen belonging. You're all trying to figure out what Judah and Ruthie have to do to get ready for school in the morning. One of my favorite things about this list is that Corey, of course, made the list. Uh, I have my own list. I just didn't take a picture of it. Uh, Judah, you have showers on there twice. <laughs> Last potty. That's for Ruthie. You have, <laughs> you have versions of this in your own families. We have versions of this in our congregation, a set of expectations for one another that we will behave in a certain way. And you don't behave this way so that you can be part of the family. You behave this way because you are part of the family. This expectation is an injection of dignity. Not only do you belong, but we need you. If Judah and Ruthie don't, don't do all of this, like, for instance, there are periods in time, right, Judah, it, where Ruthie's distracted, so Judah takes care of, like, two-thirds of Ruthie's list and all of, all of his list as well. That is not the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> How come Judah's the only one that gets to shower? Because uh, he's a boy and has to be told to shower. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. This could feel like a burden. This could feel like a new law. But this is, for at least our family, making good on the deeply held belief that we belong to one another and that we all have a part to play. When James says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers, it's James's deep held belief that we have something to contribute. This is the deepening of our faith. This is moving from salvation into transformation. This is the hard work that y'all are doing. right? Even in the giving of your testimony, there is a work being done. The sharing of your story that you have cultivated over time. Both the truth in its hardest times and the truth in its most bright and wonderful times. This is the way that James says it. Poeo of the Logos. Be doers of the word. Logos should be a familiar word to you. Comes out of the New Testament. John 1, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This top word here, to do or to make or to create, there's an explosion of it in the Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And it takes place in two places specifically. This explosion of the word and its occurrences. Can you guess? The creation narrative and the building of the tabernacle in the Exodus. The creation narrative is God doing, making, and creating. It is our foundation creation story. And the story in the Exodus, in Exodus 25 all the way through the end, is our creating and making and doing of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the Garden of Eden writ small. We've talked about this before. It is God calling us to remake the world. So there's at least one space in the world that might reflect God's plan for things. It's God's creative acts, and then the second time it occurs is our creative acts in partnership with God. Can you feel what's happening here? So when James says to be doers of the word, James is inviting us into that sacred activity to remake the world. 
Let's go back one more. The first one is creation, which is God's to do. And the second you could call the tabernacle project or recreation project. And what does Jesus say is happening in the resurrection? What does Paul explain this new reality as but a new creation? And then what are we called? The first fruits of that new creation. And then Jesus says the kingdom is in your midst. It is right here, if you could see it. And then gives us a plan, a program, a posture to make that statement more true. What are we doing in church together if not looking for the kingdom of God in our midst? And then when we find it, to cultivate its existence, to make its presence more palpable. That is our work to do. If we were to say, Jesus has done everything that needs to be done, I'm going to sit right here until Jesus gets back. Like, and that's often how, we, how religion is understood. We're just going to sit here and make sure we've got the right answers, and when Jesus comes, Jesus will sort it out. Your stories, your experiences and your stories and experiences with evidence that the kingdom is maybe present but not quite so obvious and that we might have a part to play. To be doers of the word is to do this, to write the poetry of the new creation with God. It is an active and an embodied way of holding our faith. It means that God believes in you and believes in me. This is what it means to believe with Jesus. Who is called in the scriptures our brother. Not our father, our brother. So maybe it's this. God is building something in your own life, in this city, in our world. We've got a friend here today. Where's Bill? Bill Massacoy, who uh, used to be a member here and is now uh, serving with his family, uh, hoping to plant churches and a leadership academy. Uh, there is work to do that you feel called to do, right? And part of what you're doing is looking for people who might have some shovels and might be able to help out with that work. But to feel called and to feel equipped is not unique to you. You just happen to sense it at a heightened level, but you are asking us in the same way that I'm asking us if we would all pitch in and all be doers. There's a danger in this relationship that we have with one another, that I'm the speaker and you are the listener, and then it creates a passivity, but that's never what we are going for, is it? Because every time we leave this service, we share a blessing and benediction, and the last thing I say is, please pass this on. You are beautiful people to co-labor with. This is deeply true. So, one of the things that we do in church, we've lost this a lot of the time, is hearing confession, and I'm almost done. Hearing confession is understood as listening to one another share what we have done wrong or what we have left undone that was ours to do that was right. 
But there's another kind of confession that we might hear and receive. And so one I'm going to invite you to today as we leave this teaching, as we move into worship a little deeper. And it's the confession of good deeds. So, actually, we've already heard two versions of this. Your stories have this tenderness and vulnerability to them. But I know that you heard this as well because of your breath and your sighs and your applause that we were also hearing something beautiful of a hard work that was being done by these women. Right? Amen? Amen. Yes, that's what I heard. Yeah, we can clap for that. To hear this confession of good deeds. So I I heard this story in a book that I've been reading. Uh, There's this guy, he was a fundraiser. He, He currently is still a fundraiser, raising millions of dollars for universities and for nonprofits. And he uh, was feeling kind of this soul suck, this need to reposture his life. So he uh, asked for a year leave to go uh, to El Salvador and be with uh, a group he had been working with for a while there, uh, an orphanage and other ministries. And he met up with a friend of his who uh, was a Franciscan nun. Her name was Sister Margaret. And Sister Margaret and he, they were walking together. And uh, at the time, San Salvador was incredibly dangerous. And so they're walking, the two of them, and they see coming their way a group of young soldiers, like 20 years or younger. And they've all got automatic weapons, and they've all got a look in their eye that says, don't make eye contact with me. And so the author of the book, this guy named Henry, he, he you know, moves his eyes down. He knows the rules. You don't make contact. You just let it happen. You be invisible to them. <clears throat> Sister Margaret, she says, good morning to each of the soldiers as they go by, which is crazy. That's a good way to get arrested, especially if you are a religious worker in the area. She says, good morning, good morning, over and over. Everyone ignores her, all the soldiers, they just keep moving. And then about the third from the last one responds with like a head nod. And then the next two in line also respond with some kind of acknowledgement. And so Henry's blown away at this point. And he asks Sister Margaret, he says, what is it that you are doing here? Why would you take such a risk in your relationship with these soldiers who are at odds with everything that you're doing? The soldiers were a place of fear and a place of of anger and antagonism for those communities. And and Sister Margaret tells the story of hearing the confession of good deeds. She said that these folks that she worked with had been told all their lives the things that they had done wrong and why they deserved the situations that they were in. And over and over again, it had reminded them that they actually don't have a lot of worth. It pushes them further and further down. That is the language of enslavement, that you have nothing to contribute. And so she says her ministry is to hear another story from them. So she began to invite the folks on the street to come to confess to her their good deeds. And there would be a line that would be up to her wherever she was in the city of people waiting to share what it is they felt like they contributed to their families, to their culture, to their church, to this world. And at one time, this line was long, and these soldiers who were off in the distance saw. And and you don't want to be seen by the soldiers. And so they begin to kind of crowd around and stand, and they're just waiting to see what's going to happen. And she keeps going, and she sees them and invites them over. Come over. You can share too. None of them respond. They laugh at her. She keeps going. And then after all the soldiers save one go back to their post, she catches his eyes. And she says, 
would you come share a confession? And he kind of sheepishly comes over. Remember, these are young, 17, 18-year-old boys. And she says, what is your confession of good deeds? And he says, I've done nothing good. It's not just the people who feel enslaved. It is both sides of the aggression that feel the enslavement. She says, you have something to share. What is your confession? And he says in broken breath, half believing it, I've never intentionally hurt anyone. And that was all he could give in the life that he was living. And she received it and she said, thank you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, I don't need to right now remind you of all the things that you've done wrong or left undone. Those burden you day in and day out. And if we would need to talk about those, we can and we will and we do. But you need to be reminded today that you have a part to play. In fact, I've seen the parts that you're already playing. I could gather your confessions and we could fill this stage in this congregation with them. Of the ways that you are participating right now in the work of God's new creation. Of building the kingdom here. I see you. And I know that everyone here sees you forgiving when you've been wronged, holding your anger when you would rather lash out, giving generously of something that you've earned with hard work, forgiving enemies, working for justice and for equality. What would it look like to share that confession? That's your invitation today. To be doers of the word and to feel in that action, in that effort, the lift of God's pleasure, of God's smile. That you belong here and that we need you. God's building something. Would you help out, please? Let's pray. God, it is overwhelming to be in the presence of these friends and family today. It is overwhelming because, oh, I know these. These men and women who are seeking after you. And in that seeking to believe in everything that you've said, our lives are changing. And for that, we give thanks that you would trust us enough to have a part to play in your drama of salvation, that you would write us in the story. So with courage and bravery, we are not going to stand outside looking in, but we are going to step into the struggle and into the fray. And with the witness of these women and their stories, we step forward toward you and toward one another. Make us strong and steady for the work ahead. Help us to know that we already belong to you and that whatever we do or leave undone does not change that reality. 
but our efforts in this world, God, are our gratitude for all that you have given us and all that you have done for us. That we are no longer slaves, that we are no longer bound. This is our prayer. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.